0: Good morning, everybody. I'm your hostess, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 2nd, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. (laughs) On today's show, UCI Humanities Professor Jeff Wasserstrom will consider dissent in China on the eve of this year's anniversary of the 1989 massacre at Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China. Few understand what's under the PRC hood. People's Republic of China, but uniquely you've qualified, Jeff Wasserstrom will start with this topic and continue over a longer interview about China in general on June 16. Then the latter part of the hour, Kathleen Halal, Dr. Jonathan Sorcy, and Tom Kelly will bring three perspectives toward rounding up toxic landscaping practices at Irvine Unified School District. Don't go away, we'll be right back after the shortest break ever. Welcome back to the show. As we approach June 4th, our attention turns to the 1989 massacre of untold number of Chinese dissidents at Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The recent protracted assembly of demonstrators that shut down many systems in Hong Kong was too a remarkable development for what did and did not happen. My first guest is Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom, whose extensive research and nuanced expression uniquely qualifies him to talk about China in general and in dissent in particular. With the short time we have, we'll cover Tiananmen Square and and, and the dissident uh, reaction toward that. Jeff Wasserstrom is the Chancellor's Professor of History at UCI's School of Humanities with research interests in modern Chinese cultural history with a focus on student protest. He's made a point of publishing for popular as well as scholarly audiences, including his book entitled China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Should Know, published by Oxford University Press. And he uh, promises me that the latest edition, a new one, will be coming out within the next half year. Jeff Wasserstrom completed his BA at UC Santa Cruz, his MA at Harvard, and his PhD at UC Berkeley. He completed his walk to the studio before the hour and joins me in studio right now. Welcome to Ask-a-Leader Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom. It's great
1: to be on here.
0: What, when was your most recent travel to China and how often do you get to take the cultural
1: pulse over there? I I seem to be going over there about once or twice a year on average in the last uh, decade. And the most recent trip I took was in January to Shanghai, but the most exciting trip I've taken in quite a long time was November of last year when I went to Hong Kong while the Occupy Hong Kong movement, the umbrella movement was still underway. So I got to see, it was in many ways a very utopic uh, moment when there was on the streets of Hong Kong people from many walks of life gathering together with great hopes about protecting what they see as special about their city, which includes having greater freedom of speech, and assembly than anybody has in any other part of the People's Republic of China.
0: And was your sense, were there pe- people from the mainland coming over for any excursions and they were taking measure of what was happening downtown? Because well, was, it wasn't avoidable.
1: Yeah, there was all sorts of reactions. I mean, there there was not the kind of um, support on the mainland that uh, for the protests that the government feared. And the government cracked down very hard on anybody in the mainland who showed any kind of support and sympathy for what was going on in Hong Kong. But there also wasn't much support because a lot of people on the mainland have gotten a misguided notion of what exactly things are, things are going on in Hong Kong and also um, have a feeling that people in Hong Kong may look down on them as less developed, less civilized, less cultured. There's a really uh, unpleasant dynamic going on in part because of the way the media spins things. But in part because of differences between the two places. But there were people from the mainland who came over and were curious, um, just wanted to observe it, like the idea of seeing something that they can't see um, across the border. Well, your your book, what
0: everyone should know, uh, it talks about a continuum, a, a sliding scale from support to outright dissonance in China. That's a great deal for our Western Western minds to wrap around. Could you? Give us a little breakdown in just a short time what what that would look like and how, how we can understand those different kinds of positions.
1: Now, that's a great question. It's one of my favorites uh, to get because we just saw the Book Expo America was just in New York where China was the featured country. And there were displays there of books like Xi Jinping's speeches. Various things were presented to present the official view of China. At the same time, Penn, an uh, organization of writers, organized a, a counter panel of dissident Chinese writers, ban- people who are banned from being published in China, to draw attention to limits on free speech. And both of those polls exist. There's a kind of official line, and then there are people who speak out so directly against it that they end up in exile or in jail, and their writings are completely banned. But there are also writers, my favorite to talk about is Yu Hua, one of China's most gifted um, current writers, uh, my favorite living Chinese writer. He writes novels that can be published in China, but he also writes nonfiction, including op-eds for the New York Times that can't be published in China, that can only be published abroad. His novels take critical stances toward what's going on in China, but do so in a more elusive way, do not come right out and talk about specifically taboo subjects, such as the June 4th massacre of 1989, But his op-eds, his non-fiction does. Yu Hua is not a dissident. He's not in jail. He's even a member of the Official Writers Association. But he isn't somebody who's a government stooge. He speaks his mind in some ways that can only be published abroad, and then what he publishes abroad can circulate back into China through underground, samisdak kinds of uh, digital manners. This is, a compl- this is one example. Jia Zhangke, the, the excellent filmmaker, some of whom fil- whose films are banned in China but who keeps making films, is another example of this person navigating between these two poles. They're environmental activists as well who do that. What's been worrisome about the last year in particular— is that that space to maneuver between these polls has been const- be getting more and more constrained. Uh, in March, there were five feminists who have been doing the kinds of things that push the envelope, but still stay within what's considered acceptable behavior up until this point, calling for greater attention to gender inequality, which is something the government claims to be opposed to gender inequality. But this year, for doing things that in previous years wouldn't have gotten them arrested they were detained with no kinds of legal rights where did how long were they detained for How serious was that sentence it was it was serious they were detained for um, about a month I can't remember exactly um, but what was worrisome about it was that things like this in addition to what's done to the people who are who are who are seized it also sends a message to other people who may be considering whether or not, to take a stance. There's been an ongoing hassling of the NGO that some of these feminists were associated with and so it's, And then there's been a new law announced which will um, is in the draft stage um, but is likely to go into effect that will put more and more controls on what international NGOs can do and Chinese NGOs can do. So there have been a series of worrisome signs of, of um, constriction. Um, a colleague of mine and I just co-wrote an op-ed that'll be coming out in the Los Angeles Times on Thursday. Okay, that deals on with the us. day. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, we will stay tuned for that, of course. Well, so you've already characterized a little bit about what's um, what happened in in Hong Kong, um, and so and a little bit about some, some people taking it in, but the, how the Chinese government on the mainland was trying to keep, keep the the lid on pretty tightly with that. An even more remarkable development. Uh, From that protest is the open letter that was taken out in the Guardian newspaper. Eleven students outside of China, most of them are uh, enrolled in, uh, I guess, graduate uh, programs in uh, the United States and a few in England. They realized that their government had kept Tiananmen a secret and demanded that the government be held accountable for this secrecy and the loss of life. It was a remarkable letter. Did it surprise you to see that? In the Guardian,
1: it was it was daring for the students to have put forward this open letter, especially because they signed their names, and this is something that is, um, that can very easily create could directly get you on the radar of the Chinese government. It was it was very it was very daring. It was surprising of me, uh, surprising to me, that they did it. And then the Global Times, uh, um, a publication of the Chinese government, wrote. Um, wrote wrote denouncing the letter and talking about um, what happened in 1989, putting their own spin on it. That was surprising too because the Chinese government's approach during the last couple of decades has been to try to stamp out any discussion of the event. So by doing that, they actually drew an enormous amount of attention to the letter to the point when then um, the Chinese language version of the Global Times editorial denouncing the letter was pulled off the web, less simply Having a denunciation of uh, the letter inadvertently draw, uh, make people wonder. Well, which account is true? It also had the effect
0: of, excuse me, of bringing uh, more signatories. It grew to at least fifty, I understand, and maybe it's still growing.
1: Oh yeah, I think it. I think it is still growing. And by the way, um, just yesterday, the paperback edition of a really powerful book that came out last year in hardcover by Louisa Lim. Formerly of NPR, called the People's Republic of Amnesia. So that's just come out in paperback, and it comes uh, with, and it's about the the tremendous energy that the Chinese government has put into trying to make people forget about what happened in 1989. And uh, it includes a new epilogue which connects what was happening in China in 1989 to what happened in Hong Kong this last year. Louisa Lim has deep ties to Hong Kong and was over there um, at the end of the Umbrella Movement and wrote about that for The New Yorker.
0: Well, I guess uh, as you have studied over these many years since the 70s, since your Santa Cruz days, or maybe before then, uh, how it's it's sort of a psychological piece that how can a, a, a person taking in this message over decades, how do those... Sort of uh, critical nerve endings respond when new information comes in that really turn a a, a mythology on its head. How are, are we? we is that maybe the reason why there's such a a, a continuum of dissent in China that there's different receptors to new yeah. information.
1: No, that's a great that's a great way to to phrase it. I mean, I think there are complicated things. There are there are a lot of ways in which the Chinese Communist Party allows much more kind of competing forms of information to circulate than what we think of as a kind of classic totalitarian state. In a classically totalitarian state, one of the writers who was always banned was George Orwell because it was seen that 1984 unlocked the key of what made a totalitarian state's uh, tick. In China now, you can buy 1984, you can buy translations of it. There are several copies prominently displayed in mainland bookstores. The government has become less worried about things that, in forms of allegory and roundabout ways, challenge um, challenge uh, authoritarianism. What they don't want is things that specifically describe the the crimes that they've committed, that the government is responsible for, that they're not acknowledging. So there are many things you can talk about a little bit, but not a lot. There are things that you can talk about. You can talk about the Cultural Revolution. You can talk about the famine of the late 1950s, early 1960s associated with the Great Leap Forward. What you can't do, or you'll get in trouble doing, is going into details about them specifically who was responsible for what at specific moments. So there are ways in which it's a much more complicated uh, scenario than simply all of these no-go zones. The June 4th massacre is one of those no-go zones, including images of it, and I think that's because what, what becomes a no-goes-on are things that directly contradict key parts of the Communist Party's legitimating story, and key parts of that legitimating story that remain include the idea that the Communist Party was brought to power by freeing all of the People's Republic of China from imperialist domination. What's been happening in Tibet and Xinjiang looks a lot like Beijing uh, imposing a new kind of imperialist domination. So any discussion of political events in Xinjiang and Tibet is a no-go zone. The June 4th massacre, I think what makes that really a no-go zone is that the Communist Party prides itself on having had an army that was on the side of the people throughout the rise of the Communist Party to power, the images of tanks rolling through through Beijing, and a massacre taking place near Tiananmen Square where hundreds died nearby. It's not clear that anybody died in the square itself, but near, um, near the square. The image of, of People's Liberation Army's troops turning guns on the people of the People's Republic of, of China is something that really undermines uh, the, the central myth of the Communist Party. It's okay to say in China that you think a lot of officials are corrupt, The Communist Party no longer makes a defining feature of its story the idea that it's a party free of corruption. It admits that there's corruption.
0: And it can use the corruption as a a hammer for any kind of rewards and uh, punishments that need to be meted out for perhaps more Party-aligned kinds of That's right.
1: There's been a big um, purge. We'll of talk about corruption. more of that in detail on yeah, June 16th, All those kinds yeah. of
0: things. Uh, but so that what was interesting too about that letter is it that the students took out the 11 signatories, uh, and eventually I'm sure there's more than the 50 that have been added to because of the, the whole blogosphere is operating. So I, but um, the it concluded. Uh, intentionally invoking the notion of their own dream that's stepping on President Xi's very intentional construct of the modern Chinese dream. What did you make of
1: that conclusion? It was pretty powerful. I think it's it's very powerful. I think what Xi Jinping has been talking about a lot is a so-called Chinese dream. And what it is, it's very, very different from the American dream, which tends to focus on individual and family mobility and realization of dreams of self-fulfillment. Xi Jinping's Chinese dream is very much more a dream of national rejuvenation it's a collective ideal of china reclaiming its place of significance in the world which a lot of people of chinese descent inside and outside of china are proud of some aspects of that but to make that seem that the only thing that people aspire to is what's reductionist it's really the communist party's dream it's beijing's dream it's not the only kind of aspiration that a lot of ordinary Chinese people have. In fact, there are many people who both can be proud of that national resurgence and now think that China having arrived would be a good time for there to be more individual freedom uh, to pursue different kinds of, of dreams of their own. And that's what I think the students were speaking to.
0: And if one looks at the Great Wall of... of um, the, the Great Chinese Wall, Firewall... What if we use that analogy, would you make of the effect of that letter on that great firewall?
1: Well, I think the Great Firewall is both a wonderful analogy or metaphor and a somewhat misleading one, unless you remember that the great that the Great Wall of China was also very permeable. All it took was um, one or another of the of the um, guards to turn the wrong way, and you could it, it never stopped invasions. Uh, the great firewall is a check on certain kinds of information going into china but it's n- it's never been an absolute function and it dis- it leads us away from thinking about what may be an equally or even more important aspect of the control of information in china which is the flooding of the internet and all other media with the stories that the communist party wants to tell its version of events so there's both, um, there's both blocking, which is important, and then there's chipping away at that blocking, which would be an example here. There are people within China and bloggers talk about jumping over the firewall, using a VPN or other kind of device to trick your computer into thinking you're logging on from outside of China and getting access to unfiltered information. But there's also, along with the filtering and the blocking, there's the flooding, the just making sure that most of the people most of the time are exposed to the government's versions of events. And that has a very powerful psychological oh, event, uh, effect. We all know that. Yeah.
0: We, wherever we can find a steady message. Some people, I think Roger Ailes understands how that works. So that enough of reference to that. That was way off there. Well, we know that uh, Jeff's got a really tight schedule today. This is all the time that he had for us, and uh, so I'll uh, just quickly let him wrap up. And uh, just he, when he has to leave, that remarkably, the main author Gu Ying got the last, maybe the last word, as you said, that that he signed off, and then he realized that he had he opened up the 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 floodgates by having the putting the the. Chinese government on the defensive very publicly. It's powerful stuff. Do you, uh, how do you think Gu Yi and the signatories are going to make it out alive or their families? Or are we going to yeah. have to save that for June
1: 16th? I think we'll have to save that for June 16th. But there, I would just encourage you, he's been interviewed on the web by a couple of people. So if you look for his name, Eric Lee is one of the people who's, who's done a really interesting interview Good. with him. And in general, the China Digital Times website, which is a project run out of Berkeley, uh, it's a wonderful source for getting information about China, including it keeps you up to date on what Chinese censors are trying to block from the web, as well as translating things from the Chinese press and excerpting things from uh, written in English. So China Digital Times, Google it, it's a great window onto, um, onto China.
0: Well, that is all the time Jeff Wasserstrom has. He's heavily booked today. We're fortunate to have you on the show, Jeff, and look forward to bringing all the rest of the, my wide-eyed questions about contemporary China over a longer interview on June 16th. It's Thanks, a, Jeff.
1: It's been a pleasure. I'll be see you again in okay. two weeks.
0: Thank you very much. That's Jeff Wasserstrom. He's bringing on an informed perspective on dissent in China as the world commemorates the 26th anniversary of the massacre at Tiananmen Square. Thanks a lot. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, as I queue up my three next guests that are talking about lawn maintenance in the Irvine School District, maybe in the city, maybe and lawns all around us. So we'll be back uh, in just a minute. thank you for everybody for joining us that was lou harrison's uh, pippa concerto and we're going to go now super local with my next guest they are kathleen halal health and safety chair for the irvine pta dr jonathan sourcy clinical medical director of occupational medicine and urgent care in lake forest and tom kelly consultant and lawn care guru to uh, introduce each one individually kathleen halal is a mother of th- three children in the Irvine School District. She is the chair uh, of the health and safety for the the school district's PTA council. And with her children's allergy and health issues, she's come to realize the pervasiveness of this public health problem. So naturally, as all good Irvine school district applied mothers, Kathleen's become interested in reducing the toxins within her children's environment and other uh, students. Kathleen completed her undergraduate degree at Fordham and her master's at USC. Next guest is Dr. Jonathan Sorcy, who completed his both his uh, medical and PhD in public health degrees at Harvard and his family medical residency at UCLA. He was research uh, chemist at Dow Chemical along with these medical and public health credentials and having children soon to enroll in public school he's uniquely qualified to address the choices before consumers and district managers and administrators about how to maintain these massive lawns around us also with us is tom kelly who founded be safe organic lawn program after tom kelly completed his undergraduate degree at syracuse university He got involved in the lawn care industry, as working as a technician, a salesperson, and eventually a branch manager. As he studied how synthetic chemical treatments affect soil and environmental conditions, Tom went on to develop a patent utilizing natural and microbial components to enhance turf, with the goal being to eliminate the use of synthetic chemicals and dangerous pesticides altogether in lawn care. His fire, belly, or Organic Lawn Care partnered with Natural Technologies Incorporated to bring the technology to a wider audience that includes both consumers uh, and commercial applicators. This may be one of those times where after getting the technical lowdown, we'll be able to say, you can do this at home. Kathleen Halal comes from us to us from Irvine, Dr. Jonathan Sorcy from Lake Forest, and Tom from New Hampshire. Welcome all three of you to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Good to be here.
0: Okay. I think the last one, was that a Dr. Jonathan, or is that Tom?
2: That was Tom. Okay, That's Tom. Me.
0: Okay, so we heard Dr. Sorcy, Kathleen Halal, and Tom Kelly in uh, that voice order. Well, my three guests are here to clarify and post us on their work to get the, envir- the Irvine School District to eliminate toxic chemicals in its conventional landscape practices. So let's start. Uh, kathleen might want to say something about it um or maybe tom either one you can work on this one what are the big offenders in the way of chemical compounds what's in them and how do they affect all of us jonathan do you
3: want to take this one?
2: Well oh, i can let tom take it <laughs> okay tom, tom. why
4: don't you go tom I, mean, Kelly. I guess yes tom why don't you start
2: that's funny, I was going to defer to Kathleen because I think <laughs> Kathleen has been the one who's kind of uh carried the torch uh with this one but i'll I'll open it up a little bit then and it's a great question. It's one that that we're all looking at to to try to determine um a how how big is the danger if the danger is there in the first place and b more importantly what's the what's the solution to the problem um i think i I was kind of brought into the 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 conversation here as um, as you guys um, uh, were able to kind of get rid of a, a, a product called or uh, chemical called glyphosate, uh, which we all know as Roundup, and Roundup is a um, a non-selective herbicide that's used not necessarily in lawn care or turf care because when we control weeds and turf we want to use a selective herbicide, but uh, in landscaping in order to control weeds that are that are out of place in parking lots or um, you know, right-of-way situations in the infields of, uh, of of baseball fields, uh, places like that. And and when the International Association for for Research on Cancer changed its classification um, to a probable carcinogen, I think that's when a lot of us really began to to work even a little bit more harder to to uh, to, to keep it away from children. And I think that's that's the main thing. Now, that's the starting point when you talk about. Uh, chemical turf care, um, from a broader perspective, there are many, many chemicals that are used uh, that have come into question, not only for, for health um, uh, potential problems, but even more importantly for environmental problems, uh, from from herbicides to insecticides. There are many products that uh, we've all begun to question uh, the safety and the need for, when, with there being so many more alternatives that are are much more um, uh, relatively you know safe to be around, and the efficacy is is equal to their their chemical um, you know partners. so I think maybe that's that's sort of a jump start to, to the conversation.
4: Yeah, Tom, I'll jump in here. This is Kathleen, and um, the way this kind of got started was uh, when many of these chemicals are applied to our school campuses or parks or public spaces. By law, they need to uh, post a warning sign saying that they're going to be spraying, and this is what they're going to be spraying. And so um, I and a lot of other parents started to wonder uh, what products were being sprayed around our kids because we saw that right around these warning signs when the chemicals were sprayed, the children were just playing in the dirt right next to the signs. Sometimes where when where the they belong, wet, by the
0: way. Where they belong is in the dirt. <laughs> No, where, that, oh, the seriously. Kids, yes, the of course. Kids. Well,
4: they did. And so a lot of parents, including myself, w- started to wonder, well, what all are they applying out there? And they, uh, I went to the superintendent, Terry Walker of Irvine Schools, and I started talking to him. And he said, well, you, know, you should speak with maintenance. They'll, they'll tell you what they're using. And um, it's all approved. And he said, why don't you work with them and see what kind of solutions you can come up with with them to see uh, if we can stop using these products and find viable alternatives for them. And so uh, the products that they have been using are Roundup Pro Max, Pendulum Aqua Cap, Speed Zone, Southern Syngenta, and Fusilade too. These are uh, strong chemicals, and they're all used just to control weeds. They're used to control dandelions. And these are uh, toxins. They are registered with the EPA. And while they are permitted to be used, Uh, The reason why they're registered with the EPA is because they are toxins, and they cause things like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they cause other health problems for children. I have parents who've written to me saying that these products cause their children to have asthmatic reactions or seizures. So um, I just thought it would be better to work with the district and the PTA to see if there was a way to uh, change out these chemicals and use non-toxic products, and I've gotten together with moms from other cities in Orange County and we're all working together to get rid of these chemicals around our sports fields, baseball fields, and schools and we're starting um, with the Irvine school district. Uh, The superintendent has been very uh, gracious in working with me and so have the maintenance guys and uh, the minute that study came out from the World Health Organization declaring glyphosate a probable carcinogen uh, the superintendent pulled that right away from every school campus, just to be very careful. And right now, our maintenance guys have been speaking with Tom about alternative organic solutions. And um, Tom can probably talk to you a little bit about well, what's going on, like at Harvard University and well, other places. Well, we will.
0: Places. Let's let the doctor in the house. He, he's got children getting into public school already, oh, yes, but absolutely, uh, uh, he, uh, there is. To the extent you can say there is this connection with what Kathleen is talking about, some of the, the asthmatic symptoms registering. Is there any connection that you can make with a, a pretty grounded science?
3: Well, clearly there's, uh, there are several studies that show, uh, you know, irritation of these chemicals. Uh, in the in the pulmonary system, particularly in children, and particularly in, in children who have sensitivities, uh, in many, you know, as, as we uh, readily acknowledge, asthma is on the rise. I wouldn't say it's epidemic proportions, but certainly the prevalence of of asthma in children is increasing. And uh, when chemicals are known to cause that type of irritation, it's of concern, obviously. And I think. Uh, The point that I can bring to bear here is, obviously I have a concern as a parent, but also with my scientific background and medical background, uh, as well as uh, direct exposure, uh, in a sense of the word, uh, to some of these chemicals from a research perspective. um, The fact that there's any exposure whatsoever is concerning. And in in the aggregate, overall, we, we may never know what the effect of these chemicals are uh, on our children but when uh, i was excited when i heard that there's a proposal to offer an alternative to uh, not only to eliminate the exposure but uh to offer something that's cost effective and equally efficacious in in weed control and to have nice landscaping and so um if if you can ever eliminate exposure to anything that is potentially harmful, and and we will never ultimately know those potential harms, unfortunately, uh, but if we can eliminate the exposure at all, that's a, that's a viable option, in my opinion. I, I think it's exciting to pursue that, and I, I commend uh, both Kathleen and Tom, and and the, the the school district, and and as a parent with kids entering kindergarten next fall. I think it's very timely for me to get involved with this issue.
0: And how did Kathleen and you meet?
3: Well, actually, I had received uh, an email, uh, just a general email from the PTO, um, regarding this issue of of, uh, chemicals, you know, the pesticides and the the alternative uh, proposal. And so I I can't remember specifically, but I believe I I, uh, sent an email back to Kathleen uh, stating my background in environmental health science and toxicology, and and my experience with Dow and both the Harvard. When I heard that the Harvard study was was so effective, I thought this was this was exciting to see if it could be implemented in, in Irvine, where we currently live with our ch- with our children.
0: I imagine Kathleen was a little incredulous when you said, "I've got these credentials and I want to help." <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, like I say, I I think it's a godsend. But anything I can do um, to offer, you know, uh, I I hate to say it's a biased perspective, but I I hopefully you know have some professionalism to bear on this issue. And I think as a as a a reasoned scientist, we can look at alternatives and and, uh, not not settle for simply an elimination of something that we may feel is of potential harm but also offer, like Tom said initially, offer a a viable solution that may be even better in many regards, not just in cost-effectiveness and and safety, but also in, in promoting a beautiful environment that we all really appreciate.
4: Yeah, I want to add that there's there's sort of this myth out there that if you don't use these chemicals, your yards can't be beautiful, and that that really is a myth. In fact, the opposite
0: is true. And we'll get to that. We'll let Tom talk about that. Okay. We'll let him talk about that. Currently, uh, you've got uh, a number of institutional clients that serve as examples, Tom, for better or best management practices. Uh, Tell us about your clients and how they operate and how they successfully able to phase in your best practices.
2: Yeah, and and, and that's, that's, that's kind of um, that's an important point to make because, uh, as Kathleen said, there is this myth that if – and it, it, it's hard to explain, too, because many people still do kind of buy into that, it, that if you don't use certain products that, A, you know, your lawn, whether it's your home lawn or, or the varsity football field or a park – is going to just fall apart. And if your lawn or your varsity football field or your park falls apart, somehow then it reflects on, you know, the state of you as a person or an organization. And and that's weird. There's a certain fear of failure that plays into that. Um, but it is just that. It's a it's a myth, and, and it continues to be perpetuated, but we chip away at it a lot. And the one example that I always go to because it, it's sort of an acute example is the city of Scarborough, Maine, <clears throat> um, who uh, – because of the, the work of a, a group of, of activists, were able to pass a city ordinance um, that literally uh, very quickly and acutely banned the use of, of pesticides on municipally maintained turf. That kind of rubbed the, 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 the people in charge of keeping that turf looking nice the wrong way, because all of a sudden they found themselves in a situation where they had to make very quick changes. Um, and they did, and, and, you know, it's, a, uh, I guess, a long story that I'll keep as short as I, I possibly can, but we, we basically transitioned, you know, 50 acres of turf around the city of Scarborough, Maine, from chemical to organic overnight, and we're about four years into the project right now, and, and guess what happened? The, the apocalypse did not arrive. The, the grass still looks really nice. In fact, it probably looks nicer now than it did five years ago oh, well, because we put better. so much effort into it and we just implement certain like you said best practices and, and take a different approach to caring for the turf than than a, than a chemically intensive approach would be and it works and everybody's happy and then seldom do you get the happy ending with with situations like this but it's, it's working out really well
0: All right. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on outdoor laptops uh, on lawns and gardens around the world on the web at KUCI.org, where my guests today. This portion of the hour are Kathleen Halal, Dr. Jonathan Sorcy, and Tom Kelly, addressing some choices now before the Irvine Unified School District uh, toward changing landscaping practices, dialing down the toxic menu there on those lawns. So. This is a some. It was an important point that some guests made uh, earlier th- th- this spring on my show. They were trying to dial the styrofoam appetite down, and they thought instead of banning styrofoam outright, they'd work with the good partners, the restaurant proprietors, give them lip service, good lip service for not using any styrofoam products. So sort of the, the carrot and no stick kind of a thing. And that sounds like what Tom has been seeing has been successful and uh, as a strategy. So at uh, this, and and I want for us when we think about this, it's not just IUSD that's attending to this. We all have choices. The city hall can make choices. We as individual consumers, uh, with lawns, if we still have them in this drought, and we'll talk about the drought too, in a minute. Uh, what we all all the choices that are coming out of us. So it's a teachable moment. Uh, Kathleen's brought to some of the Irvine Unified School District board meetings uh, some. Re- retired professionals with some pretty hefty credentials. Uh, I don't know if you have a summary what USDA, FDA, EPA, and naval scientists had to say. Is there a brief summary for, from testimonials from them, Kathleen?
4: Yes, I had testimonials from an MIT scientist, uh, a prominent pediatrician, or two retired USDA scientists, a retired FDA scientist, or a retired EPA scientist, I believe, and they all said they were they were most uh, emphatic about removing the Roundup from the environment around the children, but all toxic chemicals, if possible. They said it's, it's the American Pediatric Association has done studies, and they have uh, concluded that, that these uh, chemicals uh, cause children a variety of health problems. They also cause them to lose IQ points, um, and so it's just not a good idea for them to be surrounded by these chemicals. And so I took all of these letters and presented them to the board, and um, I asked them, please, to consider this organic option. And I want to mention, too, that L.A. Unified School District, the entire school district, dropped chemicals over 10 years ago. And so I think Orange County could do the same. And also uh, the state of Connecticut, all all schools grade K through 8. They do not have any chemicals allowed on their grounds. And the entire state of New York... Uh, in addition to Harvard University and some other places that Tom might get into. But uh, there, are, there are many places who have tra- transitioned successfully without uh, an increase in costs, and uh, they just have a cleaner environment. They have nice lawns and a cleaner environment for students, and, and that's what we're asking for.
0: And speaking of cost, I'd like for Tom Kelly to take up what the real cost looks like for, let's say, institutional customers like a school district.
2: What we try to do uh, is, is is promote the fact that there typically isn't an increase in cost, and 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 that's a little bit subjective because there are, are certain different, certainly different levels of care um, that you need to implement in different situations. For instance, I mentioned the the, the varsity football field, which has to be perfect, right? Typically, oh, yes. you know, uh, a municipality is very proud of their varsity football field, and when you compare that to perhaps you know the. Uh, the 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 intermediate school soccer practice field um, that has a much uh, lower um, uh, impact in terms of uh, of inputs and and what we what we found is that uh, on average when you begin to implement the the organic approach typically the cost isn't much more that's changed uh, in in the last few years you know ten years ago when you tried to do an organic program. Um, before or prior to a lot of research and development into the products and, uh, and practices, it did cost more. Um, but nowadays, and people are usually surprised or taken aback when I tell them we can do it for about the same cost. I mean, it's just it, 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 it's just fact.
0: Well, there, uh, there is a major factor in most people I think around here would be uh, considering it was an important one. So I guess I'll ask all three of you. We'll start with uh, Dr. Sorcy. How long will it be before you think the mainstream comes around and says, "What were we thinking?
3: Well, I, my hope is that it will be fairly, uh, fairly quickly. I think with any institutional you know paradigm shift in, in thought or, or implemented action, there's going to be some some inertial forces that that come to play here. And I think, you know, well, we've always done it this way, We're resistant to change. What if what if it has a negative impact on, on you know this this area of uh, you know commerce? Uh, certainly, people will be affected in terms of adjusting their their professional practices. There's a there's a there's an adoption uh, process that needs to take place. But to me, the exciting point here is that we have uh, an alternative uh, proposal. That is has proven efficacy. That is uh, equally cost effective, or certainly can be, and with a lot of uh, there's a lot of you know ground roots, grassroots support that is kind of swelling. There's an upwelling of sentiment in the community that this is this is a great idea. You know, we don't necessarily have to say why don't we think of it sooner. The fact is, it, it is right before us. At this moment, and now we have this the inertia starting to shift where the, there's a public feeling that we do have a viable alternative and let's let's push forward let's move forward with the implementation of this program and I would think you know in a fairly short order, like tom states uh it doesn't take that long to make these kind of uh, uh universal shifts and I think uh once you, you know, kind of stoke the flame or even start the, the embers of a fire in the public school system, I think all of Irvine could be a model community uh, in the implementation of this organic practice where we have a safer environment, not just for the children, but for all the families who, who live and work in Irvine. And that could be, that could be uh, modeled throughout the nation. And, in, in fact, you know, Tom presented exam- and Kathleen presented right. examples that it has been successfully. And it's it, the idea is that this could be not just implemented now, but it could be sustainable.
0: A model. A model that's there and could be here for the, the, perhaps for the district to raise the ante with the leadership with the, the city council. Well, I, I want to make sure we get a chance to cover. We, we talked about cost. What about the drought complications here? What happens when we transfer our uh, maintenance practices, Tom Kelly? To what you recommend.
2: Yeah, in theory, and, and and from a textbook definition, by using organic practices or organic products, um, you reduce your irrigation requirement. That's that's fact, and and it, it really is, uh, it revolves around, you know, if you want to drill it down to sort of a simple sort of prospect, when soil, any type of soil, whether it's loam or clay or silt or sand or whatever, has a higher organic matter percent, meaning... Um, the soil is more rich in 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 humus or, or just you know simply organic matter. That organic matter tends to hold moisture. I, I shouldn't say tends to; it does hold moisture okay. much more effectively than than um, sand or or loam or anything else. Therefore, um, you require less irrigation.
0: Over time, it it, it becomes more drought uh, not tolerant, but it becomes a better resilience toward drought
2: you got it it's not you don't snap your fingers and all of a sudden reduce your your irrigation requirement by fifty percent but it is something that certainly happens over time
0: so i guess i'd like to find out what kathleen is the next move at the district what do uh... people but parents need to know what do constituents of the city need to know where where are we at this point
4: well uh... the first thing i'd like to say is i would like to encourage uh, parents are grateful for the board's consideration of this switch to send thank you notes to them and for their having pulled Roundup off of the campuses. I really want to commend uh, our superintendent, Terry Walker, who has been working with me from the very beginning on this project. And if parents want more information, we have a Facebook page called Irvine Schools Pesticide Free, or there's a greater Facebook page that's uh, part of all of the Orange County Mothers groups, and it's spreading quickly across the nation. It's called How to Create a Toxin-Free, a Toxic-Free Environment, or Community, How to Create a Toxic-Free Community. So either of those Facebook pages, you can go for information. And I just encourage people to step up and support our school board. Uh, change is not easy, but other districts and universities and sports teams have, have done this change successfully. And um, our district right now is working with consultants to try and come up with a, p- a plan.
0: And, Tom Kelly, I want to give you a chance to talk about it, it being a win-win-win-win. Uh, there's off-site impacts when we dial down toxins uh, it, where our landscaping is. There's there's, off, there's the externalities of what we're doing on those lands. I'd like you to talk about that and what you're going to be doing in your Be Safe Mission 50 for the summer.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we fleshed out even in this conversation is that there um the the biggest hurdle that we face, and Kathleen will tell you this as well, is that it's it's perception. Uh a lot of times people simply don't know that that, that this issue is even out there until you literally see the pesticide sign in the dirt with the kid playing next to you. And sometimes even that it doesn't reflect uh on, on, on parents that and, and that's kinda hard to understand. So what 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 we've tried to do and, and uh... we're really ramping it up to a, to a to a campaign level this summer is to promote awareness uh... of the issue to begin with and and we're running a camp, campaign called be safe mission fifty uh... and and what it is all about is is really trying to quantify um, uh, the approach in terms of of knowledge and we'd really love to see fifty percent of all turf treated uh... converted to organic uh... in the next decade that's our goal and we know the only way we can get that done is by helping people to understand that, A, it's possible. I should say, A, there's a problem with the way they do it now, and, B, it's possible to do it the other way. So uh, we've started a campaign. You can go to BeSafeMission50.com and, and see some of the details. But we, we really want to help people understand that this problem exists in the first place.
0: Amen. Anything else you want to add, Dr. source You've been silent for a little bit, but we want to make sure you uh, get a chance also to wrap up this uh, conversation? Any uh, two more cents worth? Well, no,
3: I I, I certainly echo the, the sentiment in the comments by Kathleen and Tom, and I, I appreciate being involved. I, I'm thrilled. You know, I obviously have a vested interest with my children's health and safety and uh, just entering kindergarten. They'll be in school for for a long time. But I think it's exciting to see uh, a community being proactive in in even considering, let alone adopting, but I, my hope is that the adoption of this program, this alternative organic program, will be forthcoming and it will be met with uh, open arms and it will be successful. You know, if people want it, it will, it will, um, it will happen, and I, I'm proud to be a part of that.
0: Well, very good. Well, I want to thank all three of you for bringing the the three way to this particular radio show. My guests have been Kathleen Halal. She is the the health and safety chair for the Irvine PTA and Dr. Jonathan Sorcy, he is the clinic medical director with occupational medicine urgent care, practicing in Lake Forest, and Tom Kelly, consultant, lawn guru, founder of the the Be Safe. So I want to thank all of you for joining me today on Ask a Leader, and uh, wish you success because it actually it's, uh reflects on all of us, and uh, we all we all benefit from your mobilizing to to act in this way. Thank you so much all of you for being on the show today. Thank you for having us.
2: Exactly, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. With one announcement
0: I had was the, of course, the Brady chapter in Orange County for the Prevention of Gun Violence. They are mentioning a number of priority support bills in the California legislature. Senate Bill 347 deals with the prohibition for misdemeanor firearm offenses. Senate Bill 707 saying that no concealed weapons on school grounds and campuses, kind of a big one there. And then there's another one, a fact sheet Senate Bill 707. And then I also wanted to bring up what I didn't get to finish with Mr. Barajas, that the honorably discharged, dishonorably deported veteran in uh, my last show. What I didn't get to mention were all of the countries where deported veterans hail from. And I'm going to list them so you get an idea. It's not just a uh, Latin American phenomenon. They're they're coming from Mexico, Trinidad, Canada, Costa Rica, Italy, Germany, Poland, Belize, Benin, the Dominican Republic, Uruguay, Ecuador, England, Ghana, Guyana, El Salvador, Liberia, Morocco. uh, Let's see here, Scotland. And there's a few more, but I just want to give you a flavor of how really extensive it is. So that is a wrap for today's show. And we'll, I'll talk with you next week. And in two weeks, again, we'll bring up Jeffrey Wasserstrom's more extensive heft of research and nuanced communication about all things modern China. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next
2: week. Moi j'ai pris la peine de m'y arrêter dans le cœur d'Hélène Moi qui ne suis pas capitaine et j'ai vu ma peine bien récompensée Et dans le cœur de la pauvre Hélène